Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Janine Clark, professor at the University of Guelph and author of a new book, A Local Politics in Jordan and Morocco, Strategies of Centralization and Decentralization, that was just published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Janine, uh, welcome to POMEPS. Oh, thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. So. Tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, what, what is it that you were trying to uh, uncover when you began writing this? And what, what are the main contributions that you think the book is making? Okay, well, I think the book started out of sort of a twofold interest I had. One, I've had this long-standing interest in authoritarianism, but particularly in sort of um, strategies of adaptation, you know, regime control. But the other, on the other hand, a lot of my work um, has focused on more grassroots, local-level sort of politics. And decentralization was a really nice, interesting way to sort of bring these two together. I really want to understand if decentralization is devolving power from the center, what on one hand are the regimes going to do? Mm -hmm. Authoritarian regimes don't necessarily want to give up power. This is not in their nature. It seems like a rule of thumb. <laughs> exactly. And on the other hand, I wanted to sort of look at what the grassroots or municipal responses. And a lot of that stemmed from my reading in which I saw how little of the literature actually looked at the grassroots or municipal actors as agents of their own change. Mm -hmm. It tended just to look at decentralization and how it impacted them. So my other sort of purpose was to bring out this issue of agency. And, and the project got changed a little bit along the way. As it soon became clear to me, of course, there was this bigger issue of not only why do they decentralize, Really, the question is, why do they choose decentralization or centralization as a strategy of regime control? Because both of them are, in fact, strategies. So when do they choose one, not the other? And I found there was no literature looking at that. That was sort of very, they were separate questions. And then, as I said, the second issue was really to try to bring in the issue of agency. And then mm -hmm. thirdly, what does this all mean? So, so given what we know about uh, these very centralized Arab states, and as you say, the strategies of control, why do they begin decentralization? Why do you begin to see these kind of patterns of devolution of power down to the local level? Yeah, um, what I found was whether these regimes and um, decentralize or, or centralize, continue to centralize, really depended a lot on sort of larger strategies of, as I said, of regime adaptation and specifically strategies regarding societal coalitions, mm -hmm. meaning the segments of society that groups, that regimes sort of privilege, um, bring into power in order to create a bedrock of support. And what I found was really, a, a, there was sort of a key turning point, which you see, for example, the Moroccan regime decide that it's the best way for it to stay in power is actually to expand these coalitions and create more coalitions with other groups, not just one group. And one of the way it does so is through decentralization. Decentralization offers a variety of perks at a variety of levels of government and can bring more societal groups in. On the other hand, in Jordan, you see it steadfastly um, invest in one population, the Transjordanian sort of tribal elite, and continue to do so because there really, to a large extent, wasn't another option without destabilizing things further. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I link it very much back to these 
So societal coalitions that the groups make and what makes the most sense in terms of societal coalitions. And yeah, and, and there's also the global aspect, right? I mean, you've got, you know, this kind of global level push towards decentralization coming out of international financial institutions and kind of this, you know, the broad global neoliberal consensus, right? Yeah. Pushing to push power down to the local level. And so these governments at some level have to be responding to that. Oh, without a doubt. Although it's interesting because... I'll, in both cases, you do see internal discussions about decentralization occurring mm. prior to the strong sort of international pressure from the World Bank saying this is the direction to go. But Jordan successively resists decentralization. It actually begins its earliest speak to talk about decentralization in the 70s. It continues. There's quite a bit of discussion in the 90s. And then it's not until mid-2000s this talk sort of heats up, and we don't even get the law till 2015. It resists for a long time. So even though the World Bank and international organizations do play an important role, they're not dictating it. These are internal decisions made for their own strategic uh, reasons. So for, to research this book, you went, you did a lot of work on the ground at the local level in both Jordan and Morocco. Now tell us about that. Like, What kinds of research were you doing? Yeah, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of very exciting, interesting work, occasionally grueling, but a lot of um, field work. So I did in both countries lots of interviews, of course, with ministers and people in the Ministry of Municipal Affairs on the one hand, or the Ministry of Interior on the other hand. But in addition to that, I did, um, in both countries, I did sort of a two, the research was in two phases. One was sort of a, a larger tour of various municipalities doing interviews with mayors and councillors and civil society people, etc. And then in both cases I went back and went in depth to a more limited number. So in Jordan, at the time I did research, I believe there were 99 uh, municipalities in total. I went to 22 and then I went back and looked at four in depth and I chose those according to, you know, the representativeness in terms of tribes and location. And in Morocco, it, there's, it's such a, they have, you know, well over a thousand municipalities, and it's a very big country. But luckily, there's far more written on municipal politics there. So I decided to do, um, I did, a, you know, examined eight municipalities, again, throughout the whole country, and then again went back and looked at four in depth. And so... What kinds of things were you seeing then? Like, what does decentralization mean in this context? What kinds of powers are these local-level governments getting? Um, you know, yeah. what, what were you seeing? Well, in Morocco, they get a lot of powers. They get powers for, obviously, garbage and sewage and even to enter tenders, all sorts of things they can do within mm -hmm. – there's limits, of course. But probably the most important thing is, and this is really what political decentralization has increasingly come to mean, is – is that they're expected to bring civil society voices into decision-making bodies. And this is part of the 2009 uh, charter. So what I saw were two things. On one hand, while they had all these powers, they still were subject to a lot of approvals from higher levels of you know, state levels, mm -hmm. meaning they didn't have this sort of carte blanche. And, and oftentimes these approvals were fairly arbitrary and based on very personalistic decisions by governors, etc. But on the other hand, I also saw how in most, but not all municipalities, a local elites were actually able to use the opportunities for attended for civil society to their own benefit. And they were actually able to expand their patron clientele ties and amass more res resources for 
opportunities for their clients. But this was not then in opposition to uh, to the ruling party. This is actually more of an extension of it. Yeah, without a doubt, it's a complete extension. They are able to continue. They continue to work within this, you know, long chain or network of patron clientele mm-hmm. that begins the top and sort of extends its way outwards. And and that's a lot what you know municipal decentralization has done is enabled patron clientelism to you know permeate political life even further at sort of mm-hmm. lower levels of politics and it keeps pro-regime local elites in power now when, when you hear people talking about decentralization in general like in the political science literature or in the you know kind of the the technical literature there's a there's a number of reasons why you would want to do that, right? That there's certain gains in accountability and in, in the, as you were saying, like bringing local level voices in. So when you were looking at this in Jordan and Morocco, does this actually happen? Do the benefits that the World Bank or the political scientists would expect to see, do they actually materialize? They can materialize. Um, certainly in some municipalities in, in Morocco, I saw it. But what's interesting is in those municipalities in which I saw it, they were largely municipalities dominated by the Islamist party, the party of justice and development. Not because they're Islamist, did they do a better job necessarily, or not because they're more altruistic, but because they were, during the time I did the study, outside of these the sort of this, these patron clientele ties that linked back up to the regime. They were the only party in the opposition. So when they looked at the charter, these the vagueness of the charter that enabled um, pro-regime uh, politicians to sort of take advantage, to, to engage in elite capture, take advantage of what's actually intended for civil society, what enabled them to do so, they didn't see that as an opportunity because they're not part of that patron clientelism. What they actually saw as an opportunity was to actually fulfill the spirit of the charter and take advantage of the fact that there's this large group of civil society activists who have been empowered by the king's discourse and want to make a difference. Um, and they actually created, in many cases, coalitions with non-Islamist civil society or, um, or activists and ran on joint lists with them in the local politics. Mm-hmm. And then once in power, you know, sort of fulfilled their promise to the civil society activists and allowed them to actually be on these committees and, you know, uh, initiate some of the projects they wanted to initiate. Now, sometimes governments will cast these, uh, you know, the, the, the devolution of power as this kind of training wheels for democracy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I've heard this in the Jordanian case where let them learn how to be Democrats down there at the local level and that will build a culture which will eventually allow for yes. real national democracy. Did you see any sign of that sort of thing going on or was it, or is that just, uh, you know, kind of justification? I would argue that's justification. I certainly, first of all, I, I don't think there's a lack of democratic culture. But secondly, you certainly don't see that happening. Both in Jordan and Morocco, what you overwhelmingly see is a system that actually doesn't grant very many executive sort of decision-making powers to the local level. And a system that very much not only allows, but almost encourages the continuation of patron clientelism because this is, in fact, what sort of keeps both regimes in many ways going. It's an important mm-hmm. leg of their their stability, of their uh, you know ability to continue. Mm-hmm. Now, you were doing your field work. You roughly bridged uh, the Arab Spring, the, the Arab mm-hmm. uprisings. Uh, you started in 2010. You continued th- through 2012. How do you how do you think that affected 
uh, the what you were finding in your research? Was it just completely detached, or did you see changes taking place over that time period down there at the local level? At the local level, most there were some changes, but I would not say that they were huge because most municipalities I went to were not major urban areas, for example. They were urban, but not highly politicized urban areas. What I did see, for example, in Jordan was, you see 2011, all sorts of municipalities protesting against lack of services. They very much attributed their protests to previous policies and were clear this was not part of sort of the Arab Spring uprisings. But at the same time, I, I would argue that the Arab Spring uprisings certainly encouraged them to sort of mm -hmm. act upon these grievances they'd had for almost a decade at that point. I mean, Morocco definitely um, many of the people I interviewed, the politicians I interviewed, uh, I shouldn't say many, some of them were part of the protests, etc. But the day-to-day -day functioning of municipalities continued as normal, as most of them are dominated by patron clientelism. Now, what about when the PJD wins the elections and then actually forms a government? Does that then change the nature of those elite patron-client relationships? Yeah. In the municipalities where the PJD got enough seats, they are actually completely able to displace um, elites been in power a long time, hmm. you know. So one example would be Chef Shawan. I believe the dominant families that had sort of controlled the Istiqlal party had been in power since 1982, um, with only one exception, a one four-year exception in the 90s. So these are major victories. Um, they do so based, as I said, on by making alliances with civil society, but also on the other hand, they're also very strategic. That the head of their party list, they make sure they have somebody influential, somebody who sends out the signal. Um, you know, we can win with this candidate. You know, as one page a day person said to me, um, you can't have a teacher at the head of the list. A teacher's not going to give anybody confidence that you can displace a major patron. Because huh. if you're going to fight against a major patron, you better feel confident you can win against a major patron. So they're very strategic about who they put at their head of the list. And many times the head of the list, I shouldn't say many, but often the head of the list is not in fact an Islamist. Now, if you look over in Jordan, and you talked about there being a lot of resistance to the, these kind of decentralization initiatives, mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about that in terms of both the drive for it, but also why it was so difficult uh, to actually move in that direction. Yeah, in many ways, it's a, almost a catch-22 in Jordan, in the sense that the situation is such that municipalities are completely dysfunctional. Um, and I don't think the new laws change it much. If it's going to, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and what you really have is sort of the, uh, the greatest poverty in the rural areas where Transjordanians dominate and the, um, the most services and resources being invested in Amman, the capital, where large, large numbers of Palestinians mm -hmm. are. And, and this sort of imbalance, let's say, geographic, demographic imbalance or resource imbalance was already noticed in the 70s with um, many of the Transjordanian um, mayors already complaining mm -hmm. as early as the 70s. So decentralization really is a way for Jordan to try to address these inequalities that have become too great across the country, um, but also try to address, of course, um, some demands for democratization that began in the 90s and certainly with um, 2011 became even stronger. So all these things come together. But at the same time, the regime uh, introduced and rejected a variety of plans for decentralization. And a lot of that was over. How do we engage in some sort of devolution without, my argument would be breaking this chain mm -hmm. of patron clientelism? Um, because 
you know, uh, yeah, without breaking it, without undermining all the privileges that those at the top, ministers, etc., have for being at the top. So it's interesting that you actually then see kind of bottom-up resistance to devolution of power. In a way. Um, well, yeah, from a certain level, certainly from the yeah. elites at the national level, there's definitely uh, was resistance. And a suspicion and, a, and resistance. Without, without a doubt. And it's interesting because the new decentralization law, it's really not decentralization. It's decentralization in that appointed governors have more power, so they've been removed from Amman, so the governors of the governorates. But it's centralization. If you look at the bottom level, powers have been taken away from mm. local councils and municipal councils and moved upwards. So for the person on the ground, it's centralization. That's really interesting. Um, so let me ask you one last question then. So from the time you started conceiving of the book and then you went off and you did all this research, what did you find that really surprised you? What, what did you see that you didn't expect to see and uh, kind of changed over the course of your research? Um, I think on the one hand, I don't know if it changed the course of my research, but what I didn't expect to see were how many inspiring people I met. Um, you know, when I was just, for example, in Jordan and Mays, you know, there were so many mayors and municipal councillors who really want to do something mm. for their communities, but they soon get dragged down into this web of Westark, you know, um, patron clientelism and soon find themselves being corrupt. And in fact, I had more than one mayor, when I asked them if they were going to run again, said, no, the pressures for corruption are too great. Hmm. Um, so that was actually really inspiring to see that and, and surprised me. I, I, I knew I'd met, meet interesting people, but I certainly didn't, meet, I didn't mm -hmm. know I'd meet so many ins sort of inspiring people I, I met doing field work. Seems like a common story in politics is people maybe go in with pure motives and then they find themselves captured by yeah. by the perks and privileges of power. Um, and there's really no way around that, is there? Yeah. Although, yeah. At least in what you saw in these municipalities. No, there would have to be quite a bit of change. Jordan needs a much stronger party system, so not everything's reliant on mm -hmm. tribal alliances that sort of transfer resources down. Um, but with the system as it is, there's no way out of it. And, and many of these mayors actually weren't getting any perks themselves. Um, but they were at the whim of other elites who used their connections in Amman to pressure mayors to do things, for example. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Janine Clark, uh, University of Guelph, and author of this new book, uh, Local Politics in Jordan and Morocco. Uh, Janine, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.